I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode number 64 of Inside Agrito. Now today I'm delighted to welcome as my guest Mark Daniel, the machinery editor of New Zealand's leading agricultural journal, Rural News. Now Mark moved to New Zealand in 2002 from the UK and initially worked over there for dealerships before taking up his present post with Rural News in 2015. Many in the British agriturf industry will remember Mark from his time representing Rustons, Barris and Class UK. A Welshman, Mark lives in the small community of Raglan near Hamilton in North Island and I spoke to him about the current farming scene in New Zealand. Uh, just for reference, many of the figures he quotes are in New Zealand dollars, uh, which are currently around two to the pound sterling. So Mark, many thanks for joining me today. And, and first, how did you start out in the agricultural machinery industry in the UK? Uh, well, I, I left agricultural college, Chris, I think, uh, oh, I'm just trying to think early, early 80s. And then by about 82, I went to Ruston's Engineering, RICO, as they were known in Huntingdon worked for Richard Rustin and Harold Rustin as a demonstrator of all things, a little D-series truck and hauled my way around the UK back in the day of masculine power harrows when they were new to the market, you know, and then um, eventually became uh, a territory manager up in the northwest of England and looked after places like Lancashire, uh, all the Yorkshires, the Humbersides and Cumbria. And I believe you had an association with Chris Gibson and his family. Yeah, absolutely. When I when I moved from Huntingdon up to Lancaster itself, I looked after Chris's old father, Michael Gibson, um, and he had uh, a house converted into apartments in a little village called Melling up in Lancashire. And I ended up living in one of uh, Michael's apartments for a number of years. So uh, I this family very very well yeah yeah it, it's a small old world and, and from is. there i understand you you went to barris a uh, little bit of a change in the product group yeah absolutely i was always a motorcyclist um chris and back in the day and I, I i think i was at rico for about 12 years and then moved to barris but back in the day i was a motorcyclist and barris for it was the early days of um of quad bikes i guess you call them or atvs and barris were quite robert glenn was quite sort of um, keen on getting diesel engines into american polaris petrol motorbikes so i was involved for a couple of three years there sort of out um, selling and demonstrating diesel engine um atvs which were probably a little bit ahead of themselves you know so uh, yeah. single cylinder yanmar diesel it sounded like a thwaite stump truck um, if you had some sort of woolly Welsh sheep, they could always outrun the bike anyway. You know? <laughs> and uh, well, at the time, I was I was sort of uh, I was a bit um, I was a bit sort of um, less intelligent, I suppose you'd say, than I am now. And we used to go out onto farms, Chris, and farmers would get us to take quad bikes to places you couldn't stand up. And I used to keep falling off and breaking bones. And eventually, my wife said, "You need to stop doing stuff like that because you're getting too old for it." You know. <laughs> Um, so then I moved on to the class company. And what role did you have there then, uh, Mark? Again, I was a territory manager, so I looked after the Northwest, the Midlands, Wales, and down into um, Gloucestershire and Wiltshire, looking after people like Riverley Tractors in the West and Mill Engineers. You know, good old um, Mike Wiggins at Bybury, who was the it was the main man in the industry selling um, self-propelled forage harvesters back in the time. So. Spent many a day out underneath foragers and on top of foragers with Wiggy and, uh, sure. and you know, created a market for the class in them days. Had uh, had class actually, they'd acquired some dealerships at that stage, hadn't they? They were just in the early days of it, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. 
Helmut Klaas obviously got sort of um, run roughshod, I suppose you'd call it, over the years, because back in the day, not long before I started, most of the Klaas foragers were sold to New Holland dealerships. And then uh, New Holland decided they wanted to, to sell their own combine harvesters, so they put the pressure on dealers um, to to take the New Holland product in preference to the Klaas product. So at that time, Helmut Klaas was into... Um, he was into retailing in France, of all places, with the harvest centers in, in France. So that was the sort of starting point. You know, he said, nobody's ever going to throw me out of a dealership again. I'll open up all my own dealerships. So uh, that was the sort of legacy or the start, I guess, of the of the class retail business. Indeed. Up. And I don't know whether you've seen a recent report in the Farmers Weekly here that the class uh, dealer group are the biggest dealer group in, in the UK. I did the see it last weekend. Yeah, I keep an eye on the UK market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Of, of course. So um, what prompted the move to New Zealand then, Mark? Well, the move actually dates back, Chris, to year 2000. And if you remember back 99, 2000, we got the dreaded foot and mouth in the UK. And Klaas reduced their team of territory managers from five territory managers down to three. And unfortunately, um, I was at the uh, I got the uh, the short end of the stick. But at that time, I was working for a very, very good sales director called Merv George, who was a Kiwi. And he uh, put me in touch with the Klaas distributor in New Zealand, a guy called Herbie White. And I came out for a look in New Zealand. I think it was in the summer of two, 2000 like what I saw, and we sold up and headed lock, stock and barrel to uh, the South Island in New Zealand. At that time, I was a retail um, manager for one of the retail class stores in, in the South Island. Was that the power farming company at the time? No, no, that was the land power company, land power of the class distributors over in New Zealand, still are to this day. Um, but after I'd been here about, um, oh, I think, 12 months, I came across a guy called Jeff Maber, who owns the power farming group. And Anybody in industry worldwide knows Jeff Maber because what he doesn't know about tractors, he doesn't need to know anyway. And back in 2001, Chris, he was just he'd just taken on the import um, franchise for the new McCormick and Landini tractors as were there when um, CNH sold off the Doncaster factory to Argo in Italy. So we became the distributors for McCormick and Landini tractors. And I was the national manager for both those brands. So I was responsible for, for bringing the machines across from Europe and distributing them to the to the 20 or so dealerships we had in in New Zealand. So. And, and Power Farming, um, I, I see that they're quite an interesting company in as much that they're now represented in, in, uh, in uh, Australia and in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Power Farming is a privately owned company owned by the Maber family. So they distribute... Uh, Back in 2010, I think it was, uh, they, were, they weren't really getting anywhere with, um, with the McCormick thing, especially when Doncaster closed down. So they changed brands to the SDF brand, to the Deutsch Bar and the Sami tractors. And very, very quickly, they changed over in Australia as well and, and pushed out an awful lot of tractors. And then about four years ago, I believe, they've, they've now taken over distribution in, in, um, in America, based in Atlanta. Um, so they really know they're they're a, a very dynamic business with a turnover of about six hundred and fifty million dollars. So privately owned business so as well as the tractors. They then sell Caverna Land, um, oh, and a, and a bunch of other franchises. You know, Coyote again, uh, versatile from Canada. So a very very sort of dynamic business. But again, sure. like the Class organization, they own all their 
retail distribution branches in, in New Zealand, but then sell wholesale into America and uh, Australia. So from all your years at the sharp end of the industry, you, um, you, you came into, uh, instead of doing it, writing about it. How did that come about? Well, that came about, Chris, because back in, back in that Deutsch Far time in 2010 to about 2014, I was the national training manager for Deutsch Far for the Power Farming Group. So I literally spent half my time in uh, New Zealand and half my time in Australia, meaning that, you know, I was 26, 27, 30 weeks a year in Australia. And even though I had thousands and thousands of air miles and always used to sit at the pointy end of the plane, it just got a bit too tedious. And I was living out of suitcases, um, living out of hotel rooms. And I decided to um, to move away. And as somebody, somebody said, you know, I've been talking rubbish for years, so now I write rubbish. <laughs> But it, no, but it came it. about really because the main the main newspaper in New Zealand is a, is a product called Rural News, which owns titles like Rural News, Dairy News, The Wine Grower, Australian Dairy News. And they had a legendary machinery editor called uh, Tony Hopkinson, who got to about 72 and decided to uh, retire. And they approached me and said, hey, uh, Mark, would you like to come along and, and become the machinery editor? And certainly I've loved it, you know, an absolute sort of... Um, work from home, go where I want to go, have the beauty of traveling around the world to lots of different events and tractor factories and machinery factories and all over Australasia. So it's a great job, you know, without without the pressure to uh, to sell as it used to be in the old days, you know. So. Indeed. And uh, Mark, uh, to come on, uh, I think we've, at this stage, we've probably got to touch on uh, the, the impact of pandemic on, on New Zealand in general. Obviously, you've been in your post yeah. since 2015. You you hit an issue with foot and mouth here in the UK, of course, and, and now yeah. a, a similar disruption to, to the industry. What's the current situation? We all we all read about the sort of lockdown situation in New Zealand and how it's Well, I guess we were one of the first to lock down quite aggressively, Chris. And fundamentally, we've been locked down for nearly... Uh, we, we locked down on the 25th of March, 2020. Yeah, I two days it, after the UK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember it vividly because it was the day we moved house. And we had to get <laughs> moved before, before midnight. Otherwise, you know, there was no show. And uh, we moved on that day and we were locked down and... Um, largely, we've been locked down ever since. We actually opened the borders about three weeks ago to uh, to travellers, and it's it's had a major effect on the industry, obviously. Uh, and, and what um, about and what about your your job? I mean, presumably, thank goodness for Zoom or, or whatever. Well, believe it or not, as a rural journalist, we are classed as essential workers. So long as we take um, sensible precautions, we can still go out onto farms or onto onto businesses. And the same with the agricultural machinery industry, Chris. That was deemed essential. Um, so most of the dealers, you know, took a lot of precautions for isolation, but they were still allowed to get out on the farms to service tractors and uh, and sneakily sell a few tractors as well, you know, when nobody was watching. So I guess so, speaking... So, yeah, it's been interesting, but the market over years has been quite dynamic because nobody was going away on overseas holidays or OEs, as they call it, you know, for the Kiwis up to Europe. Um, both the ag machinery market and the motor vehicle market have just exploded, you know, absolutely exploded. People are buying new cars. The normal car market, to give you an idea, the normal car market in New Zealand is about 120,000 units a year. It's now gone to about 180,000 units. Really? I actually picked up a new car last week, a Toyota, which sells one in four of all the cars in New Zealand. Been on order for 12 months. 
And thankfully, I picked it up last Friday because on April the 1st, our government, which is uh, big on emissions and all this sort of stuff because it's a Labour Green government, uh, will put a $3,500 emissions trading tax on that vehicle if I bought it after um, April the 1st. So we had a big sigh of relief when it arrived last week after 11 months waiting. Well, happy driving then. Um, I, I guess, uh, in theory, the agricultural industry in New Zealand um, ought to be more important at government level than perhaps it is here in the Oh, in the absolutely, yeah. We're, we're in a bit of a strange situation currently, Chris, because as I say, for the last three or four years, we've had a Labour Green government and they don't they don't sit well with um, with farmers. For the last and the previous nine years, we had an a conservative government, which are very pro-farmers. So we've gone through some doldrums at the minute with emissions trading and water quality and all that and, and taxation, you know, this green tax on new vehicles. And again, with, with little, I suppose, little sort of foresight of what's going on, because believe it or not, the biggest selling vehicle in New Zealand is a Ford Ranger, Ute as we call it, followed by a Toyota Hilux Ute, followed by a Mitsubishi, uh, whatever Ute it is, you know. and 70% or 75% of all the vehicles in New Zealand are utes or SUVs. Um, so the government is saying, go electric, go electric. And if you buy an electric car over here, you can get an $8,500 rebate. But of course, you can't buy an electric ute or electric SUV over here at a minute. You know? So the people are saying, well, yeah, you know, we agree with, with climate change and reducing CO2 emissions, but Let's just sit back and wait until we can get some viable alternatives. You know? I, I say a quote from one of your, uh, from I think it's a co-op, from Fonterra. Um, Fonterra is the largest co-op in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, and, and I see their chief exec recently said four years ago, relationship with government was non-existent, but now it's much better. Is, is that the case, do you think? It's getting better, but purely because Fonterra is a, is a farmer-owned, 10,000 farmers own, um, own, own Fonterra. And Fonterra is pushing a lot of green initiative, you know, because we live in a woke world, Chris, I guess. And they're pushing a lot of green initiatives on farms and their supply of farmers. And the government is sort of um, is smiling that, that, that such a big company you know, is doing that sort of thing. So certainly I think they've got on side. Fonterra has certainly got on side with the government in the last couple of years. Um, as far as uh, tractor sales are concerned in, in New Zealand, I think your your average tends to be just over four, four and a half thousand, is it? Um, well, four and a half would be a, a, a big year, Chris. The, the, I think the running average for the last dozen years of about 3,800 tractors. Yeah. But certainly in the last couple of years, we've got up to four, six, four, seven, I think it is. Something like but that. but yeah. um, it seems there was a big blip back in 2018, 19, uh, because of, of some uh, taxation issues, was it? Or, or uh, 1819 are uh, largely because uh, milk was making an awful lot of money. You've got to remember, Chris, we, we're a country which is focused on milk. We're the largest dairy exporter in the world, so they tell me, with with a sort of export output of about $21 billion. Um, so if dairy farmers are making money, they buy machinery and cars and vehicles and tractors, you know. So uh, yeah. it's, it's the old saying, if they've got money, they spend it on farm machinery. Most of them have got heavy metal diseases. Indeed. So as far as the dealer scene, scene is concerned, um, is it focused on a, a few uh, big companies with many branches or uh, how is it split? Are there lots of small independents around as well? No, they're, they're getting swallowed up. You know, if, if you look at the market, I think the last count I made, there was about 150 dealer outlets in New Zealand. 
And you've got to realize, Chris, that the land area in New Zealand is just about the same as the UK. Uh, so we have about 150 dealerships. Um, and then of that, we have people like John Deere will have a 27, 28% market share. Uh, we'll have CNH have got a 25% market share. Uh, Agco with their Massey, uh, Fent and Valtra range with about 18% market share. I call them the first division, and everybody else then is in the um, is in the sort of six to eight percent market share, you know. The, and I call that the second division. So, uh, but but yeah. So, so 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 looking back to the premier division, I think John Deere is is going down the route of the UK. So looking to have big dealer groups, and I think if I remember rightly, there's about eight in New Zealand now. One of them being Service from Canada. Um, so a Canadian business-owned service, which is the biggest John Deere uh, company in New Zealand. Uh, and then we have another um, big organization called the Norwood uh, Business, which is a, a Swiss-owned company, which, which is um, a distributor for New Holland and Case IH, as we speak. Um, and they have their own distribution outlets for the New Holland brand, and they work through independence for the Case brand. And, and that's how, all about the change in June. CNH have decided they don't need an importer in New Zealand. They're gonna they're gonna drive it out of Sydney in Australia. So nor would we go back to being a dealer rather than a distributor. And the combined market, Chris, in New Zealand, I think the last time I saw some numbers was about one point eight billion dollars well, well, for uh, tractors and farm machinery. Yeah, uh, you you've got your uh, Tractor and Machinery Association (TMA). Um, I know, yeah. No, TMA is Australia. Tama is is New Zealand. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, tractor and Machinery of, uh, of Australia and then Tama of, of New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and that includes, you've got an association and uh, that includes uh, manufacturers, importers and dealers, does it, in its membership? Yeah, they, they, it used to be solely a manufacturer stroke uh, importer business and largely focused on tractors. But in the last few years, they've started um, taking on um, dealerships who are interested purely to advocate, you know, towards government for, for different stuff. You know, we got a lot of stuff going on at the minute, like end of life initiatives for tires and batteries, you know, and to give you an example, they're linking it back to the motor trade. So the motor trade pays about $10 per tire when they import it to, dis to dispose of it at, its, at the end of its useful life. So they're proposing to do the same with tractors. So obviously a heck of a lot less tires involved, but they're talking of a rear tractor tire costing um, an extra 4000 for disposal, you know, at the end of its life. There's a lot of discussion going on about that, you know. So. Uh, I see there's also some, they're keeping an eye out for this right to repair legislation going on, obviously in the States at the moment, at court level. And uh, uh, I understand there's quite a quite a lot of uh, interest in that outcome in Australia. Is that uh, Australia, spreading over to yeah, a much larger market than us. You know, they're, they're up sort of, I think, 16, 17,000 tractors this year and a lot of broadacre stuff. And I think the the key difference, Chris, with Australia is is travel. You know, you can drive 350 kilometres between dealerships. New Zealand, you would never travel more than 45 minutes to a dealership. So less of an issue in, in that respect, but certainly something that's, that's underlying, you know, because Kiwis in general are great menders. You know, you have to realise that sometimes it can take four or five days to get parts out of Europe. So a Kiwi, there's a, a lot of good engineers in most towns over here, which will take a gearbox apart that got, probably got thrown away in Europe and he'll repair the thing and make shafts and gears for it. And 
so yeah you know that that they have a can-do attitude in that respect you know they can fix things and mend things you know might be a crude or a or a bush mend as they call it but it'll keep somebody going you know it, that that seems to suggest that um being an agricultural engineer is is quite a prized um uh, position in, in in new zealand uh, it, how are dealers finding getting getting staff at the moment oh huge problem and it has been for the last decade or more um because agriculture over here is not seen as as a gold star industry with the young people chris if you know what i mean you know they they think attractors are dirty old smelly things and you have to lay under them and all your mates are at the beach and get covered in barley horns or cow muck so they've had a heck of a job recruiting youngsters into into agricultural agricultural machinery in particular so the big companies now are are, are taking 13 and 14 and 15 year old um school children and getting them interested early you know because in the past they've said oh well we'll wait till they go to university and when they've qualified in engineering then we'll get them interested in coming into farm machinery but by then it's too late you know because they're interested in rocket science and computers and all that and the farming machinery industry was losing out so the, the smart companies now are taking on people a heck of a lot younger and introducing them to old-fashioned apprenticeships you know? yeah good I, I also note that um agribusiness learning um in schools is quite is relatively strong and i read a, read a report that um 27 of secondary schools do include it in the curriculum so absolutely. do they teach an agricultural course you're absolutely right yeah again you know that that's more to get to get kids involved in agriculture um not just in the machinery sector you know but in all the other sectors in in the hort sector in the livestock sector because it's not other than farmers children it's not seen as a as a career industry you know but uh, but as you know chris some of the technology you've been using agriculture now will will put the motor industry to shame and all oh absolutely absolutely um and, and you still need an initiative and uh, it's not purely still done by computer as it is in the motor trade of course absolutely right yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. um so yeah you know there, there is a move certainly in the last few years the one thing that always amazes me because you know i came out of the uk and we had with a number of um, colleges, you know, like uh, Rycott Wood and White yeah. College and all those places who had engineering courses. There are no universities in New Zealand offering agricultural engineering courses. Really? There are some broad-based agricultural courses, but nobody actually offering um, engineering courses of any sort that I'm aware of. Um, is, is pay an issue, Mark? I, I, I note a recent figure that uh, the average hourly pay rate to an ag technician in New Zealand is about 35 uh new zealand dollars which i think is about 18 pounds sterling yeah that would be the number i know but but again chris like any industry um there will be guys out there earning 50 and 60 dollars an hour you know yeah um it, uh, funny enough i was reading we, we've got a huge problem at the minute because we're in the middle of picking kiwi fruit i hope you eat some kiwi fruit for your breakfast but so we're in the middle no, of we the do. Kiwi, fruit, kiwi fruit picking season and normally kiwi fruit 50 percent of the workforce to pick Kiwi fruit are backpackers, you know, from Europe, from from America, from Australia. But of course, they've not been allowed into the country for the last two years, so it's a dire situation. So, so the kiwi fruit industry at the minute are offering pickers sixty dollars an hour for picking kiwi fruit, which is serious money, you know, yeah. five hundred dollars a day if you 
get your A into G, as they say. You know? Well, of course, it's a similar situation over here. We, we, we relied mm. on a lot of the Polish and so on and so forth, which obviously hasn't been helped now by uh, what's going on in uh, Ukraine and so on. But uh, yeah, 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 the vegetable uh, the vegetable industry has been similarly hit. But but on the whole, I guess there's a recently been signed uh, trade deal between New Zealand and, and, and the UK. Has that been generally welcomed over there? I've been very welcome. Yeah, I understand it hasn't gone down too well over with you guys. But, uh, <laughs> well, and again, we we keep seeing a lot of drivel in the post about you know poorer standards over here and all that, which is absolute hogwash, um, Chris. You know, dairy farmers and sheep farmers over here. I'll give you an idea. You know, lambs at the minute are worth two hundred and twenty dollars a piece. You look after lambs when they cost two hundred and twenty dollars a piece, or you're getting two hundred and twenty dollars a piece. Milk is milk is selling at currently at ten dollars uh, per kilogram of milk solids, but cows are valuable items. So the the husbandry is is very very good over here. You know, the one thing we don't do, Chris. You know, which which I suppose you could say is it good or bad husbandry? I don't know, but but a dairy farmer over here, if he's got a bad cow, and if she looks to be a, you know a sick cow, he won't waste an awful lot of money because it costs one hundred and fifty dollars to get the vet to come out. Then he'll spend. Um, an awful lot of money on antibiotics and drugs to try and keep her. Um, unfortunately, the cow will probably get a bullet long before that happens, you know. Indeed. It may sound a bit cynical, but that's the way it operates, you know. But but we've got big herds over here, you know, so you can't afford to absorb costs like that. Yes, the average herd size over here is about 450 cows, um, whereas I understand in the UK, the last time I saw it was about a, um, was it, 113 cows in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the interesting number for me is the UK cows produce exactly twice as much milk, about 7,600 litres of milk. And uh, the Kiwi cow produces um, 4,400 litres of milk, but they're about a third smaller cows. So they stay out all year, Chris. We don't bring yeah. cows indoors. They stay out all year. They're purposely bred smaller so they don't damage the ground. Um, you know, and it's a very low input system. We don't use an awful lot of uh, fertilizer. Uh, and is that true? Of, of, of bearing in mind the climate uh, change, possibly between north and south, is is that the same throughout the country? Yeah, in the, in the deep south, in Southland, as they call it, which is next stop Antarctica, it can get very cold. In the middle of the South Island, you know, to give you some idea, you know, where the snowfields are, we can get down to minus twenty five quite easily in the winter. But largely, the cows in those parts of the world, you know, are still outdoors. They might have um, a polythene tunnel or something like that, which we call a herd home, which they can get a little bit of shelter under. But we won't see big, um, you know, capital intensive buildings and cubicles and all that sort of stuff. But again, in the South Island, there's a couple of European Dutchmen and they've put big automated barns in, you know, with two and a half, three thousand cows in. There's one guy down there who has eight herds with 30,000 cows, you know, to give an idea of the scale. Really? So New Zealand is about five and a half million cows. You're about 1.9 million cows over there. Yeah. So uh, that'll give you a rough idea of where we are in terms of cows being important in New Zealand. And and how is the farming community really? You you mentioned climate change issues recently. Is this a big debate within the farming community about how they go? Massive, Chris. Yeah, massive. The um, we've been getting, or the farming community has been getting a lot of aggro from the current government for the last three or four years. They keep wanting to um, to take us into uh, into the Europe uh, emission trading standards, which was agreed in Paris. You know the Paris summit, whenever it was. But what the what the local government has seemed to uh, have forgotten, the Paris summit said that they would like to see emissions, particularly um, CO two and NOx, reduced. 
but not at the expense of production because we need a heck of a lot more food in the world. But our government has forgotten that not at the expense of, um, of production. So they're putting a lot of pressure on farmers to, to keep cattle out of waterways. Uh, they put a cap on nitrogen fertilizer of um, 130 units per annum. Um, so, yeah, you know, so the farmers are getting a bit fed up with the government. So we've, you know, we're, we're in a stage where there's a few protests going on every couple of weeks. I think last year somebody drove a, a grey Fergie up the steps of Parliament to, to protest. You know. And I do see pictures of uh, lines of tractors and, and driving through Auckland or wherever. Absolutely, yeah. That was back in July last year. We had a, a group of farmers uh, down in the South Island got together and, and uh, rustled up farmers. right, And they did a thing called groundswell, you know, which was farmers saying, well, if you want... If you want to eat food at sensible prices, you know, you need to get behind farmers and not listen to some of the stuff that the government's coming out with in terms of uh, of turning the country green. You know? And to give you an idea again, Chris, uh, we we have off the west coast of uh, the North Island, a place called Taranaki, we have some big gas and oil fields. And the government has stopped any further exploration in those uh, gas and oil fields for you. Yep. So all our fields now have to come from offshore just about. Now, the, the, the whole world uh, industry seems to be suffering from shortages of, of machines and spare parts, components, and, and so on. Um, you're pretty remote down there. What, what's the situation down in New Zealand? Um, I understand parts is not too bad um, because the government, is, all the planes that used to, the, the, the commercial planes that used to run from New Zealand up to Europe, you know, Air New Zealand, uh, the government is now subsidizing those passenger planes to be freight planes. So there's, might, it might take a little bit longer, I guess, to get um, spare parts in, but but they are getting here for sure. Uh, when it comes to new product, uh, the lead time on tractors pre-COVID typically was about five months. That's now pushed out to 10 months to a year. And certainly things like combine harvesters, I heard a story from uh, from a CNH uh, area manager a couple of weeks ago that said they're talking 16 months to get a combine over here now. Does it come yeah, direct? It's not a huge market, Chris. Only 20 combines a year sold in New Zealand. So yeah. they've obviously done very production and sent it elsewhere and said, don't worry too much. Uh, I, I even saw a little note in your uh, in your magazine to say that um, rural news were even running short of paper. <laughs> and we, I, I'm absolutely right. We've had to change the quality. We, we were quite sort of different in using very, very high-grade paper. But in the last... In the last um, three months, the price of that paper has doubled, but you can't get it anyway, you know. So we're going back to old-fashioned newsprinters, they call it. But again, the freight the freight thing has just killed a lot of stuff over you. To give you an idea, Chris, pre-COVID, a 40-foot high-cube container landed in Auckland, out of typically out of Germany or out of Italy, you know, from one of the tractor plants, uh, which would hold 230-horsepower tractors, with all the charges, was about, between ten and eleven thousand New Zealand dollars. That same container is now thirty-two thousand dollars. Gosh, yeah. And but... that's if you can get space on it, because a lot of the boats are coming as far as Australia and saying, "Well, sorry, we ain't coming to New Zealand because there's, you know, such a small number of containers coming to New Zealand nowadays." Yeah. And then again, there's a there's a compounded problem if if those big container ships don't come to New Zealand, the empty containers don't get collected up, so that pushes more. Support uh, pressure on the supply chain, you know, because they need empty, empty containers back in North America and Asia and Europe to refill, you know. So, so, so it, it's a major sort of a, a problem. Yeah, yeah. Are you able to compare your your life, if you like, on the road uh, in 
in the UK with uh, your current uh, role in New Zealand. Uh, are, are the major differences, Mark? Well, the major differences, I think, is a is a cultural thing. You know, I left the UK, Chris, in 2001, middle of 2001, you know, and I, I've, I've been lucky to come back. But we still have some family there and in South Wales and, and Manchester. The thing that always gets me is obviously um, is the traffic. Again, as we, as we started out, Chris, like we, we've got the same landmass, but we've got 5.2 million uh, people living in New Zealand, but you've got, what, 65 million maybe and a few more probably? Yep. Um, so, you know, there's a heck of a lot less people. And 1.2 million of our 5.2 live in Auckland anyway. So there's a lot of um, lot of space in New Zealand. Um very easy to travel around New Zealand. We've got, um, I think it's 24 regional airports. So in reality, if you want to hop on a plane, you know, you can fly from Hamilton, where I live, down to Wellington in 45 minutes, and it costs you about $120. So you couldn't do it in a car. It'd take you nine hours in a car, you know. So, uh, yeah. so, so that side of it is is, is great in New Zealand. Uh, we can go to places like Fiji and Rarotonga in about three hours, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks if you just fancy four or five days in the, in the sunshine. So, yeah, the... I think the standard of life is better. Having said that, in the last couple of months, we've seen some massive increases on on food costs in particular. So, I mean, this is a worldwide story, of course, uh, Mark. Uh, And and at your time and the news desk at uh, Rural News, um, is there a sort of one story that that, uh, stands out that is memorable in, in terms of its impact or interest? Oh, not really, Chris. The the one thing that amazes me every week. Is, is the pace of technology. I say I've been involved in the in the ag machinery industry, you know, since about the early 80s. So what is that? That's 40 years just coming up. And back back then, you know, in the early in the first 20 years of that of that involvement in the industry, change came every every five to ten years. I'm seeing changes now happening every two to three years, you know, and fundamental changes in in some of the stuff that's going on. New Zealand's quite an interesting place as well, Chris, because our technology is probably, I would say, five years behind Europe, you know, and the one thing that's going to get addressed in New Zealand in the, in the very near future, and it's happening already, is effluent, you know. Yes. In the past, dairy farmers dug a big hole in the ground. Um, they threw all the effluent in the, in the hole in the ground, and they crossed their fingers that the sun would evaporate it. Uh, obviously, the local authority says, well, you can't do that because there's risk of polluting rivers. So in some places, they have to put storage in place for up to 120-day storage. And, of course, the, the, the big difference now is fertilizer is so expensive, all of which is imported into New Zealand. There's no production in New Zealand. And means that all of a sudden they've realized that every tanker load of, uh, of dairy effluent has a value of about $80 to $90. Here. And so I think the companies who had a little bit of foresight a few years ago to get into um, – to get into uh, effluent technology, they're going to reap the benefits in the next three to five years. And, and what about um, you talk about technology? What about robot robots? Um, I'm thinking about robots for picking fruit and and so on. And um, yeah, there's, kiwi there's, fruit. there's some of that going on, but I say up until recently, and, and there's, there's been a big change in that in the last two years. Some huge developments going on: autonomous tractors, robotics for picking fruit. But up until two years ago, we had a lot of backpackers, you know, picking fruit. So there was. There wasn't that much interest, but certainly there's a bit of interest now. Um, so there's quite a bit of technology. You know, you've got people like Yamaha involved now with uh, robotic pickers and uh, mini helicopters for putting agrochemicals on and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, 
there's there's quite a bit of interest in in that sort of stuff as well yeah well, look, uh, Mark, it's really great to catch up with you. And thank you for uh, staying up to talk to us today. And, yeah, when when Wales play the All Blacks, who are you shouting for? Oh, well, I'm a Welshman, Chris, so I support Wales and anybody who's playing against England. We've got the All Blacks, obviously, which are, are all conquering around the world. You know, and I think the last time Wales beat them was in um, in 1953, if I remember correctly. I'm 63 this year, so I've only got a few years for him to do it again. But hey, you know, you live in hope, Chris. So, uh, <laughs> well done. We might do it one day. Well, w- well, once again, Mark, it's really great to catch up. Thank you very much for, for taking the time. It's been most interesting uh, and I, I hope enlightening for my listeners. So thank you uh, very much. Absolutely. And if you ever get the chance, come and have a look, Chris, and we'll show you around. So, very many thanks to Mark. I certainly found that a fascinating insight into an agricultural market on the other side of the world, where it seems that the issues being faced are universal, no matter where you are. Mark had a real grasp on the figures, the politics and the people in a country where farming is central to its economy and its future, but which faces new challenges in maximising production at a time of stricter environmental controls. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>